Hey, good morning. Welcome to Kesed. Uh, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm going to share with you all a little bit. Uh, I want to welcome especially new folk, people who uh, church isn't really your jam, but you're giving it a shot anyways. You probably came with a pretty girl or a handsome guy, but I'll take it. However you got here, we'll take it. Uh, and I'm for real, though, I'm excited that you're here. I realize uh, church is complex, to say the least. And a lot of people have some sort of story with it, around it. Uh, and I know that it, it, sometimes it takes a lot to, to set that down and figure out what this God who made you wants to say. So thank you for being willing to do that. Uh, we are in a series right now called Oaks from Ashes. We're talking about what it means to build a Christian faith. And we're talking about spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that are ancient. These are not modern things. These are not new tools. These are things that since Christ 2,000 years uh, from then have really taught Christians how to have better community with him and uh, with uh, one another and with the church and so forth. And so I'm just really glad you're here to, uh, to participate in that. Uh, today we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of observing the Sabbath. Uh, for some of you, it might be an easier way to grab hold of it, to think of it as rest. Uh, and it's, it's not a very easy talk, especially for us who, who grew up in the western part of the world, because, uh, you know, rest is what you do once you've earned it, right? And, 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 I, and I relate to that. I'm, I'm slightly driven. And so, uh, I, <laughs> and so I'm not going to speak to you today on this as if I have I've overcome this or this is something that um, is... is easy for me. Uh, instead, I'm just going to tell you what I learned about it and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do with, uh, with those of us who are in the room and watching online. Yeah? Good to go? Um, we're going to start off with the first time that we hear this idea that we are, as people, built uh, genetically and spiritually and emotionally to rest, and that's during the creation story. So God creates everything. He speaks it into existence, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and then he blesses two things inside the creation story. The first one is us. We are to move forward and subdue the earth. We are to, to, uh, to create children, if you will, and, 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 and teach and move and grow, and he blesses humanity. And the second thing he blesses is the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. I'll put the verse on the screen. Thus says the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. First off, there's a lot of he had done inside this passage. Like three times, God wants you to realize he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it. He created all of it. And he set an example that in spite of doing, 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 your job is not just to keep doing. That in spite of the fact God doesn't need to rest, he doesn't, that's not a requirement that, that, that somewhere inside his being, he did it as an example, as a fellow doer of, that, of this truth that we are still called to have balance and to rest. And so he rests and then he blessed that day that he rests on. That day was called Sabbath, as I said, and it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, I was actually hoping that there was going to be this really romantic definition to that word Shabbat, but the word literally means to, to stop. Like basically it's like knock it off, just, just stop. That's what the word means. The Sabbath is simply a day to stop. Stop working, stop wanting, stop worrying, just stop. But it's also known 
within its other definition, and that is translated as the word delight. The Sabbath is an entire day to stop and delight, to follow God's example after the creation story, and to engage with that part of ourselves that's so hard to hear when we are caught up in accomplishing. The Sabbath is, uh, is special, but it can be easily, easily missed. And so God's people, his creation story, they do the first thing. They become prolific. They subdue the earth. They move forward. But the entire time they're doing it, they're not doing it in any sort of manner that brings rest or balance or harmony. And so one nation grows and overcomes another nation. And, and there's armies and there's wars and there's all these things until eventually God's people are held bondage in the nation of Egypt at the time. And for about 400 years or so, they were taught generation after generation after generation what it meant to work as slaves without a day off no matter what. Until God decides to free his people. Those people become free and they get out into the desert and God is providing for them. Right? He's providing food. He's providing water. And he decides to provide for them a new way of thinking. A new way of seeing the world. And so he gives them ten commandments. Good stuff like don't steal your neighbor's wife. And then don't murder your neighbor when he steals your wife. Like stuff like that. Like... <laughs> <laughs> helpful things, right? And one of those things is the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, 8 and 11. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So basically, down to the golden retriever, everybody stops working at least once a day, right? You don't, you, this, is, this is shocking to them as a slave nation at the time. Like a whole day to do nothing. Why? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He reminds them back to the beginning that this is how you are to build the foundation of your understanding in this world. You are to find rhythm, and you are to find rest, and you are to remember what God did all the way back when he created you and everything you see. Uh, important side note, the Sabbath is the only spiritual discipline that we've talked about or will talk about that makes it into the Ten Commandments. It's that important to our foundational understanding of how God operates and how God sees us. And yet, it's so rarely observed properly. At this time, when God spoke to those people in Israel, he is teaching them something that, that would have felt like a rebellion. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, who has an entire book just on the Sabbath, so you're going to hear from him a little bit today, said this, This Sabbath, the one in the desert, is an act of resistance. It's an act of rebellion against Pharaoh and his empire. He goes on to say, The Sabbath rest of God is the acknowledgement that God and God's people in the world are not commodities to be dispatched for endless production, and so dispatched, as we used to say, as hands in the service of a command economy. Listen to this last line. Rather, they are subjects situated in an economy of neighborliness. All of that is implicit in the reality and exhibit of divine rest. 
we are supposed to be living in an economy of neighborliness. And a huge significant part of being a good neighbor is having a day of rest where you can appreciate the people and the places that God has set around you. For these people, it was shocking. Just like for some of you right now, you're thinking, ah, I I rest, you know, I take a nap on Sunday afternoons and and every once in a while I try to go to bed early. (laughs) That's not at all what's happening here. See, in this story, as God is giving these people this command, showing us that rest is this important, we have to realize the amount of trust and reliance that comes with them not working. These people lived in an agrarian society, and when they didn't work, they didn't eat. So for God to ask them not to work was like, hey, this is a whole lot of trust in you. And that's exactly right. So much of rest is an act of faith in God. And so whenever these people would disobey and work on the Sabbath, there were severe consequences because what they were really saying was that we don't trust God. When they were following this command, they were proclaiming that we're not going to work today because we're going to trust that God that never sleeps will provide. During this time, God gave a whole bunch of feasts and other celebrations along with these commandments. And each of the different feasts and celebrations were ways in which they were to remember the way in which God provided for them and, and again, was being woven into their, this, this, this slave nation's mindset with each generation new ways of being. Now, there's about 500 years from the time in the desert to when Israel started really, really struggling. And during that 500 years, there were multiple feasts they would observe. I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but one of the feasts, a quiet feast, a feast not very often highlighted, that God added to Remember the Sabbath Weekly was something called the Sabbath year. And the Sabbath year was a year every seven years where they would take off the entire year and not work. Can you imagine... The stress that that would bring in a fledgling nation. This is the passage in case you're looking for it. Exodus 23, verse 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. That the poor of your people may eat what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Now here's a really sad fact. At the end of that 500 years, there is no proof whatsoever in any of the historical context that that the people of Israel ever from the desert through that time when they really began to struggle ever one time observed a Sabbath year. It was like they were like, we can do this one thing. We can do a day off a week. All right, God, we can do that. But every, every seven years you want us to take off an entire year? We don't think so. No, we don't think so. And what's so fascinating about that is eventually Israel lost their nation for a while. They were, they were exiled into Babylon. And do you remember how many years they were exiled in Babylon? Seventy years, which correlates to all the years of Sabbath they would have missed throughout the 500 that God reminded them he wanted. Second Chronicles 36, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God does not mess around. 
And this is a reminder of the importance of, of especially these people and what they were building. They needed a, a different rhythm probably than we even have now because they were building an entire generational uh, construct of what it meant to be God's people on the planet. And he wanted them to be different than everybody else. He wanted them to have a faith in him all the way up through the government. And so he said, every seven years, I want you to take off an entire year and dedicate it to me. And they were like, we love you, God. And we're going to do everything except for that. And he was like, cool. Well, the land still needs to rest. So 70 years of nobody on it. I wonder how that applies to you in the room right now. I wonder where God is asking you to rest, but you're just not really doing it. And so he's, he's gently, I hope gently, I pray gently, pushing you into that rest anyways. Um, I have a wife who rests a lot better than me. And I can, that, who laughed over here? You don't even know us that well. She's like, <laughs> of course she is. You know, of course she does. Uh, but, but I will say that when, when I get going too fast, when, when I'm just my, I just put my head down and start doing the work, uh, generally speaking, something ends up happening where, where Aaron just demands, which she doesn't do a lot of that, but, but whether, it's, whether it's we get sick because we didn't rest and have any time, or she just is like, hey, I talked to Tom, and I took off three days next week, and I'm like, I got plans. And she's like, yeah, those plans are with me. Ha, huh, let's go. And, I, and I'm like... But Jesus needs me. And she's like, I talked to him. He don't need you that bad. So, <laughs> Yeah. You see, as Christians, we're supposed to understand that if we want to experience the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but, but like Jesus was kind of a big deal when he was here. Um, there's a quote of the message if you want to quote me on Facebook later today. Like, Pastor Danny, Jesus was kind of a big deal when he was here. Um, but, but he did huge things. He accomplished huge things. Like we talked last week, he was starting a movement. And yet, I don't know if you've ever realized that every time Jesus did a big thing or heard about a big thing or was impacted by a big thing, he always paused right in the middle of it and just rested. Right before calling all the disciples, right after overcoming temptation in the desert for 40 days. Matthew 4.12 says, now that when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Right after Jesus heals the man with a withered hand, which created tons of commotion within the city. Matthew 12.15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. I've joked before that as a church planter, when great things happen in the midst of trying to create a, a community of believers, like, if, like I've said before, if somebody, you know, got their withered hand healed in a service, I would be like, I would be like, hey, next week we're going to do withered feet. Let's go, everybody. Let's bring it. Like, let's tell our friends. Jesus is like, this is amazing. People are like, you might be God. And he's like, I got to take a nap. It's just a really powerful truth to his risen, to his his rhythm, right after the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Right after he confronts the religious leaders, one of the few times he just does it drastically and publicly, 1521 of Matthew, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. After the 12 disciples returned from being sent out, the first thing he says to them in Luke 9 on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And lastly, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. 
<laughs> That's some momentum, folks. I have yet to have a king-making sermon. I have yet to preach something so powerful that people are like, you should be president. Like, that's never happened. But Jesus does, and they're like, we should make you king. And he's like, nah, I'm going to go for a walk on a mountain. (laughs) If we want to be like Jesus, I'm talking to the Christian folk in town, the people who do the good work, the hard work, who show up when nobody else does, then also it appears we're supposed to rest like nobody else does. But it's hard to do. It's hard to, 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 to allow it to sink in. A.J. Swoboda said this about the Sabbath. The Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result? Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It is not as though we do not love God. We love God. We just do not know how to sit with God anymore. I think a lot of us uh, have done work with God for so long. We've, we've, uh, we've, we've tilled the, the field. We've taken care of the vineyard, right? We, we've separated uh, the, 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 the good fruit and from the bad fruit and the good sheep from the goats. And we've done all the good work and we've got it all memorized. And we're always standing and we're always doing and we're always clipping and we're always watering. And we're like, this is God's vineyard and we got to take care of it. But we never actually sit with the owner of the vineyard and just enjoy the grapes growing on the vine beneath the sun that we have nothing to do with. We're too busy down inside the weeds to actually step back and look at the rolling hills of his presence. And we certainly don't have time to uh, sit with him and talk about what his thoughts are about the work we're doing. Because we're just too busy doing it. Corey Ten Boom, we talked about her last week. She said, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy. Yeah, that convicted me too. You know, because I want to think, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a good and busy person for Jesus. And according to Corey, who has a fair amount of wisdom, she said, you can be so very busy that the devil's like, I don't got to worry about you because you're going to burn yourself out. I'm going to worry about the people over here who keep taking walks on mountains every time some amazing sermon happens. Those are the people I'm going to worry about. There's truth in what she said, for both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off my connection to God, to other people, and even to my own soul. This is why hurry and love are incompatible. You can't love someone fast. It takes time to see them and to hold them and to to wrestle with them and to hear their longings. You You just can't be like, yep, love you, love you, love you too. It's, it's got to be different. Yet, for many of us, it's just not. It's almost like our culture continues to teach us that to hurry is to be healthy when actually it's quite the opposite. Meyer Friedman was a cardiologist who rose to fame for theorizing that type A people who are chronically angry and in a hurry are more prone to heart attacks. Now, right now, you're like, yeah, that's obvious. We know that because sometimes people be so stressed. We're like, hey, you're going to kill yourself. Relax. This man said, hurry is a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Friedman went on, based on this study, to coin the phrase hurry sickness. 
after noticing that most of his at-risk cardiovascular patients displayed a harrying sense of time urgency. And by the way, folks, this study was done in the 50s where everything closed at 5 o'clock, milk was delivered to your door in glass bottles, and nothing but the church was open on the weekend. Mm. I'm sure we're all doing much better with this now than we were back then. I'm sure in a room like this, we don't have anybody with hurry sickness. We are just made by our culture to not rest. This is why an authentic union with God can really only happen if we are recognizing that we are made to slow down. We have to choose, is it our culture or is it God that we will follow? Most of us in this room, including myself, usually measure achievements, not rhythms and time with the Lord. And yet the Bible teaches clearly over and over that if we measure our rhythms and time with the Lord, achievements will follow, not the other way around. Think about how many people in the Bible, how many people in Scripture are completely page after page after page doing things for God without having a life actually with God. Think about characters such as Balaam, the Old Testament prophet, Judas Iscariot, and Saul. Think about how these people, according to their communities, were engaged in what most certainly would have been considered effective work for God, and yet very clearly None of them had an authentic connection to him. You can do great things for God and hurt yourself in the meantime. Especially if you're doing things for God for you. And not doing things for God for him. On the other hand, consider a man like David. Who like constantly fell on his face over and over and over. Could you imagine just like you're living your life. And then God's like, I'm going to eventually give somebody a vision of your life, and they're just going to write it down to bless the world. You, would you just not die, like all the things, the mistakes that you've made over and over and over again? I would. And yet, and yet David just is a, is a beautiful picture of a person who time and time and time again wanted to not just do things for God, but also wanted to be connected to God. That We talked last week about David with Bathsheba and all of that stuff, but eventually David repents, and his repentance is deep and filled with, with, with remorse. And so God blesses David for once again coming back and resting in his arms even through his repentance. And do you know how he blessed him? By giving him a boy named Solomon, who the world would know as perhaps the wisest man who ever lived. And yet God described him like this. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. Could it be that when you are repentant and willing to add these principles back in your life as David was, God provides? What if, just question for us in the room, because I know, I do believe most people are looking for wisdom. That's one of the reasons that we love having the older generation a part of Kesed and being a multi-generational church. That's one reason that the bass is too loud for everybody over a certain age and the babies are too loud for everybody under a certain age and we're good with all of it. Like, we got babies and bass galore here. That's what we're about. <laughs> this, this sermon is full of all kinds of wonderfully uh, misappropriate quotes if you use them the wrong way, but, but that's what we're about. And we're about it because of wisdom that people want. But here's my question. What if wisdom is measured most accurately by the level of rest one can experience? What if wisdom is actually measured by time on the mountain? 
Not by all the stuff you can orate. Not by all the ways you can help and serve and do and accomplish. But by all the times that you, hopefully me and others, are like, hey, this is as far as I'm supposed to go right now. I feel like I'm supposed to withdraw, go back and get refilled by God so that I can come and help more. And also so I can enjoy and delight in him. This is how Sabbath is supposed to be. This is, this is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to fill your heart and fill your life. And you're supposed to look forward to it. And I can tell a bunch of you in the room are still pushing against that. I can feel it. Because you're like, Danny, there's so much to do you don't understand. I do understand. I'm made to understand. I have an insatiable amount of good things to do. I mean, I, could, I, I got a list, and they are beautifully powerful good things. And no, if I'm honest, on that list is not take a break, take time off, get away, go to the mountain, go stare at a tree and see what Jesus wants to say. That's not at all what I'm into. But the truth of it is that Sabbath re- eventually turns into something really beautiful if you're willing to practice it. For those in the room who are uh, still kind of pushing against it, I have a quote for you. I'm going to read it over you. And, and my guess is that this is going to sway some of you to realize, yes, I need more Sabbath in my life. Are you ready? This is a gift. This is for you. Dan Allender quotes what he said. The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. How many people in the room are like, you know, honey, I just realized we need way more Sabbath in our life. (laughs) This is my favorite spiritual discipline, and I'm going to practice this. I'm a man of God. I'm a woman of God. We're going to have Sabbath often. (laughs) Did I just become president? Is that just what happened right now? (laughs) I refuse. I refuse. This is how the Sabbath is. How did that, how did that translate overall? Was that pretty good? Yeah. I love this church. All right. Good, good, good. Yeah, make sure you go home, you get some more Sabbath today. That's important. That's a command from Pastor Danny, right? And the Lord, and the Lord. So um, if you're looking to take a deeper dive into that kind of stuff, John Mark Homer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, does a great job of unpacking this. Does a great job. Here are his 10 symptoms that you might have, as the earlier cardiologist said, hurry sickness. Number one, irritability. You get mad, frustrated, or just annoyed way too easy. If you're frustrated that the first thing on the list is irritability, you probably got hurry sickness. If you're hypersensitive to the quote I just said a a little while ago, you probably have hurry sickness because if all it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings or a grumpy email to set you off, you're probably not well rested. How about restlessness? How about workaholism? 
How about emotional numbness, meaning you don't have capacity to feel another's pain because you don't have time to even feel your own? How about out-of-order priorities? You feel disconnected from your identity and calling. You are always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. How about lack of care for your body? You're so busy, you don't have time for the basic eight hours of sleep at night, daily exercise, some healthy home-cooked meals, and minimal stimulants. How about escapist behaviors? Ways we cope. When we're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for our souls, we each turn to our distraction of choice, overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching television, browsing social media, surfing the web, looking at porn, name your preferred cultural narcotic. How about a slippage of spiritual disciplines? When you get over busy, the things that are truly life-giving for your soul are the first to go rather than your first go-to, such as quiet time, scripture reading, prayer, worship on Sunday, a meal with your community, and so on. And lastly, this one I think is really, really vast and probably a big cross-section of our church. When you are not well-rested, you feel isolated. You feel disconnected from God, others, and your own soul. On those rare times when you actually stop to pray, and by pray, he says, I don't mean ask God for stuff. I mean sit with God in the quiet. You are so stressed and distracted that your mind can't settle down long enough to enjoy the Father's company. John Mark goes on to add, recently I read a survey done by a doctor who cited the happiest people on earth. Near the top of the list was a group of Christians called Seventh-day Adventists who are religious, literally, about the Sabbath. This doctor noted that they live 10 years longer than the average American. I did the math. If I Sabbath every seven days, it adds up to, wait for it, 10 years over a lifetime, almost exactly. So when I say the Sabbath is life-giving, that's not empty rhetoric. If this study is to be believed, every day you Sabbath, you are statistically and scientifically likely to get back on a long-gated life. It's almost like that principle earlier from the Sabbath year and the 70 years in, in exile. What if some of us, because we are not Sabbathing, are actually living in exile to our work? And what if, based on that study, those, those, those days you aren't going to get back because you're not willing to rest and receive the delight of God's presence in one another? Um, my wife and I have struggled with uh, work-life balance because of what we do, because of how much we love the good work of the kingdom and all those movements. Uh, it got worse about two years ago. Um, Pete Scazzaro said, we find God's will for our lives and our limitations. And Aaron and I found our limitations about two years ago. We lived way out of town. We had some acreage. It was very peaceful once we were there, but it was too far away between the campuses and the work and the evening meetings and dinners. And uh, it just got really, really stressful. There, were, there was a season where, where I was sleeping in my office because I'd have a dinner uh, in between meetings and it made no sense to go home before I had that late dinner or hospital visit or whatever. And so we sat down and we were like, this is going to break us. And so we made a decision to, to, uh, to redefine what it meant to, uh, to work. And we sat down. Uh, Tom, our executive pastor, helped us. And, and uh, also Byron, my therapist, helped me. And we decided that we were going to create a margin in our lives. We were going to create something we called an oasis. And so we went through everything we had that we had collected in 23 years of marriage at that time and threw away everything or donated 
that we didn't use on a regular basis, which is very, very difficult if you're someone like me because you don't know nine years from now, I might need this. (laughs) But with the goal of an oasis and the goal of creating more margin, we did that. We moved to a house that was, that's now, I think, five, six miles from here in between the campuses. Uh, it wasn't easy for me. I've, I've grown up on property. My wife was, like, born in a neighborhood and loved it. And I thought, listen, trees are, are where Jesus is. And she's like, and so are light posts, right? That, just, that was just a choice we had to make. And it truly changed everything. We now have this oasis that no matter how stressful work life gets, we can go home and, and it's not filled with clutter and it's not filled with, with nonsense. We even got into plants for like a whole summer. Like because it was just like when we're home, let's just take care of something that can't send us an email afterwards. That's really, really important. <laughs> Super important. Super important to have something you can still care for, but it can't email your elders, right? That's a helpful thing. And so we, we created this margin. And if you don't know what margin is, this is my favorite des- definition. Margin is the space between our load and our limit. And, and Aaron and I were working at our limit constantly. And so it took a ton of, of, of little tiny deaths to work our way down to where our load and our margin uh, or our limit existed. And we had margin. And it was awesome and it was beautiful. But I'm just going to confess right now, the first six months after we moved into our house, I thought I was literally going to die. Because the, do, the sound of doing nothing was deafening to me. Like I was like, there's so much happening out in the world. Like, like, what if the church started to burn down? I can't pray the flame away. I can't help nobody. I can't get involved. I can't, I can't serve. I can't protect. There's nothing that, that, that I'm not doing. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing that I'm not doing that God can't do for me. And I hate that. I want to do it. So he's like, well done, good and faithful manager, worker. no. That's not what he says. No, he doesn't. Because he's the owner. And I'm the steward. And he does it all anyways. And sometimes he just wants to sit on a hill, look at the sunset, and go, I did that. And I'm like, yeah, but I picked these grapes. <laughs> they're, they're really good. They're for you. And he's like, yeah, I grew. I, I, get, get, the, get the bucket of grapes out of my face, Danny. Let's just talk about what's going on in your heart. And I'm like, let me get that bucket of grapes one more time. I want to distract myself with the work I do, I think, because sometimes I want to distract. I want to think I distract God with the work I do. Because sitting with him and resting with him can be really scary. I heard a story about a man that was seeking the face of God. This is a modern story. And he was doing it in everything he could, from, from you know, uh, the Bible to other belief systems to math, everything he could. And he told the story that he had this dream and he was out walking, and he heard the voice of God, and it said, you know, follow me in, in, to this place, and you'll find me. And so he came to a mountain. He's like, maybe God's here, and God wasn't in the mountain. And then he came to a beautiful valley, and he's like, maybe God's here, and God wasn't in the valley. And then he came to this raging, vicious river, and, and there was just little tiny bridge across it. And then across the way was a spot that he was like, I think that's where God is. And so he's like, God, I want you to protect me as I cross this rickety bridge. And, and I'm just going to believe in you. And I'm going to believe in, in, in who you are, that you are a protector. You are a provider. And I'm going to take each step as I go. And I'm going to do my work, if you will. And so he took a step after step. And he thought he almost made it. And crack, snap, 
boom, the bridge fell apart and he went tumbling into the river, cursing God for not being the provider he thought he was. Splashed down, he got, you know, washed down a half a mile, just slammed against rocks, slammed against everything until he got caught up in some branches and his face was barely above the water. And he was like, why God, why? You said if I came to this place, you would be here. And God said, I am here. And he goes, no, you're not. You allowed the bridge to fall apart. And God said, yeah, that's because I am the river. And I want these things that you're seeking to be washed away and scraped away. And I just want you to be drenched in me. But being drenched in me is sometimes scary and powerful and even a little unpredictable. And I think for a lot of us, if we're going to decide to rest, that's how it's going to feel at first. You decide to turn your phone off for one whole Saturday and just spend it with the people that God has asked you to spend it with. I don't think the first time it's going to be like, this is amazing. Just me and my two kids that won't stop talking. And I can't candy crush them away. I don't think it's going to feel pleasant at first. Maybe, maybe, maybe some, maybe you're different than me, right? Maybe you're different. Or you could fill it with other things to do on Sabbath. I have a list I could read you real quick if you wanted to. And it's full of singing and dancing and feasting and playing and sex and reading and painting and walking and talking and sharing. It's full of just being a human. But it's probably not full of accomplishing the things in this world that you won't take with you. Because it seems like God's Sabbath rest brings life to areas that we are dry and hurting. And so I would love for you to try it. I'd love for you to practice it. And maybe, it, maybe it's not a full day. Maybe it's two hours you start, just two hours. I'm gonna give you a Psalm that you can read during that time. There's two Psalms known as the Sabbath Psalms. One is Psalm 37. So you can take that one. You can write it down. It'll be on the notes, which are all in the app. This is the one, though, I want to read over you, and it's known as Psalm 23. It's called The Lord is My Shepherd. It's written by that man, David, who knew something about rest. My question as I read it is, have you ever lived a life so filled with rest and recognition of God's rhythm for who you are that you could write something like this? He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And this is one of my very favorite verses in this whole beautiful book. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What would happen if you took time to rest so that goodness and mercy caught you? That they didn't just follow you, but they met you in that space, in that meadow, 
in that front room, sitting on a bench, holding the hand of a loved one, what would happen if you decided to awaken to the life that you're living and not just sleep work through it, trying to accomplish so that the next person can come to steward what you've built so that they could sleep through their life and accomplish so the next person is, could come and steward what they built. What if, like the people of Israel, we started a brand new generational habit of actually listening to God and resting? What would, what would that be like? I don't know but I'm hoping that our church can find out. So Psalm 23, Psalm 37, consider pausing, consider adding this to your life and see what God wants to do with it. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this room that this just would not be another talk and another Sunday afternoon, but that there would be a spark of uh, renewal, of resetting, of reimagining, of retrusting, of refollowing you out into the place where rest exists. Thank you, Lord, for the people in this room, the ones watching online that are so willing to uh, walk with you, to follow you, to be challenged by you, and to trust in you. We lift this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll be here next week. We're going to close this series. Yeah, we're going to close this series uh, with the spiritual practice of celebration. We're going to have ice cream after service. It'll be a blast. So invite a friend, come check it out. And uh, God bless. Have a good rest of your Sunday.